ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of the Hedging Screens podcast. As always, I'm your host, Zach Cronin, and I'm so grateful that you would choose to spend some time here with me today. I hope everybody is doing well. I hope all the folks down in Texas are still staying safe, staying sane, and just kind of just, you know, being generous and helpful whenever get whenever they get the chance. I haven't really seen too much about it. I know there are some people who have been down there doing their best. I know my guy, James Harden, not like I'm friendly with him, but, you know, being a fan of the Brooklyn Nets, I'm basically friends with everybody on the team. That's kind of how it goes. I saw that last Saturday. His restaurant went and donated 3,000 meals to people in need. People like AOC going down there, raising a whole bunch of money just to, you know, try to get people back on their feet and try to just keep them, you know, just, I, I don't even know, I, I don't even know what to say, just try, just doing their best to make sure that folks don't go crazy during a time like it is right now, and I hope that things are getting better, and I, I'm just, I'm, I'm praying for y'all, for real, I'm, I'm praying for everybody down there, because it's just disgusting what's going down, and how some people are just really just looking like complete assholes during all of it. So just know that y'all are in my prayers and I hope that we get out of it. I hope not we, but yeah, I hope that you guys get out of it sometime soon. And before we get into the crux of today's episode, there's one thing that I, I feel like I need to talk about and it's the negativity that is so rampant through, you know, really all kinds of media in general, but also sports media. As we know, people who work for major news networks, this is just regarding like US, like United, the news about the country, the news about the world as a whole, negativity sells. And when you're a news station or a quote unquote news station, your ultimate goal is to make money. You're not really a news source, you're an entertainment source, and I totally get it. So a lot of the times people perpetuate these stories that are kind of just like, well, why the fuck are you even talking about that? That's not relevant to anything. It's just a whole bunch of negativity for no reason. And the same shit is true in sports. I'm sure, like, I'm sure this is a shock to everybody that there are negative people who work in sports media and I just feel like it's so unnecessary a lot of the time just to come in and be a fucking party pooper for no reason. And we saw this a couple nights ago with Anthony Edwards. I'm not going to mention anybody by name, but I'm sure you guys know who I'm talking about. And this is not an isolated incident. People do shit like this all the time. And it's super frustrating because as I've gotten older... And I've, you know, matured. I've learned sports are entertainment. It's not life and death. Granted, a lot of these get well, all these guys, it's their job. And, you know, they're going out there, they're doing their duty and they're trying to bring home a paycheck, whatever. But still, at the end of the day, it's not life or death. Like you're sitting down to watch a basketball game or a football game or a hockey game or anything of that nature. You're doing it to have a little bit of fun, to watch your favorite players go out there and just fucking shit on somebody whether it be taking their ankles, putting their nuts on their face on a poster, that's what you're looking for. And over the weekend, I think it was over the weekend, it was last week, definitely, um, Anthony Edwards went out 
and put his fucking cock and balls all over Utah, U- Utah, Watanabe. I think that's his name. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing it, which I've learned I do quite frequently. But Anthony Edwards, the rookie for the Minnesota Timberwolves, just straight up violated this man. It was a spectacular dunk where Edwards, who is super athletic, rose up and just like demolished Utah. It was so bad that Utah fell just like straight up on his back. And you know you have a vicious dunk whenever the person that you're posterizing and when they're bigger than you, mind you, just falls down and they crumble like they just got hit with a fucking block of C4. Dude just straight up crumbled. And it was this insane dunk. It was one of the all-time greatest in-game dunks, if I do want to go that far. I saw people talking about it yesterday on ESPN, like, where does this rank? I don't know where it ranks. I'm not good with shit like that. I'm not good with coming up with, you know, these fucking in-game dunks and making a whole tier list and doing all that. It's not really my wheelhouse. But I do understand that what Anthony Edwards did was fucking amazing. And to his credit, Anthony Edwards has been playing decently well of late. Unfortunately, that one night, it was not his best showing. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull up this box score. So, Anthony Edwards, on the season, just for a little bit of context, averaging 14 points, 2.5 assists, and about 3.5 rebounds, shooting 37.5% from the field, and 31.3% from three not very efficient numbers from the young man but you know what he's a rookie i'm not gonna castrate him over missing a bunch of shots should he make a higher percentage of his shots he probably should but he's again a rookie he's not in he's not on the greatest team in fact he's on the worst team in the league and coming out of georgia we knew that his offensive skill set needed a lot of work like Anthony Edwards is not someone who can really do a lot with the ball in his hands he's not an exceptionally lethal shot creator a lot of the damage he did in Georgia was the result of him just being way more athletic than everybody and just being able to run past and jump over them so he's playing the Toronto Raptors on the 19th which today is the 23rd so that is Friday Saturday somewhere somewhere in that area the final score of this game, I didn't realize, was 86 to 81, which is just fucking horrendous. 19, this is a 1993-ass box score. Anthony Edwards finishes with 7 points and 4 assists on 3 of 14 shooting. And on a night where he had this ridiculous poster, folks felt that his shooting performance was more worthy of the conversation. People were just disregarding the fact that he made this amazing play. And they were like, yeah, you know, that dunk's cool, but look at these numbers. And pretty much just spitting in the face of this young man and hating on him for no reason. And I'm not trying to come off and make it seem like you're not allowed to criticize players as a media personality or as a basketball analyst. That is a part of the job, and I totally understand that. In that instance, though, 
what you could have said was, hey, Anthony Edwards is not having a great game, but look at this play he just made. It's It really shows the type of potential that this kid has. But to not even like mention the greatness of the one play that he did is super just disingenuous. And I feel it doesn't really belong in this space, especially when you're on Twitter. And Twitter, as many of you guys may know, and all social media platforms, actually, they're not exactly the best breeding ground for logical and nuanced conversation. It's a place where you go, you make jokes, you enjoy the game, you laugh about it, you cry about it, and you kind of just shitpost, but it's all in good fun. Of course, the negativity on Twitter is very, it's a huge piece of what the platform is. And I don't think that I'm like this fucking patron saint coming down and illuminating this issue because I'm not dumb. I know that people know that this is an issue. I just kind of wanted to vent about it because it's just like, it's so frustrating. It's just like, why even take the time to formulate a tweet that is just shitting all over somebody? And I'm sure I've done it in the past. Again, I'm not trying to act like this holier-than-thou person. I'm just venting. And if I had engaged in that behavior previously, which I'm sure I have, I don't know how much of it was real. I don't know how much of it was just, you know, pretending to shit, to shit on somebody. I want to apologize for that. It was wrong. <clears throat> if it was serious, of course. If I was just joking around like, like I was talking shit the other night, and we'll get, we'll get to this a little bit in a little bit, but I was talking shit the other night when the Clippers and the Nets were playing, and it wasn't about anybody in particular. Oh, actually, it was about Patrick Beverly and how he was just fucking flabbergasted that he got whistled for a foul when he shoulder-checked Jeff Green, like very clearly thrust his arm into Jeff Green, who ultimately wound up having to leave the game with some sort of injury. I was talking shit about that and how Pat Bev was just like beside himself, how he couldn't fathom that he had just gotten whistled for a foul when it was very clearly a foul on him. I don't really know if that falls into this regard, but as far as I can remember, I've never openly like shit on somebody just for doing something because I really don't fucking want to because I don't want to put that type of energy out there because you put that type of energy out there and people are then just going to come and shit on you, which ultimately what happened that's just kind of how the internet goes. If you say something and the market doesn't like it, they're going to let you know that they don't like it. But I just, it, I wonder like what the next step is. Like if you're watching basketball, which is supposed to be fun and a relief, but you like struggle to find things that are worth praising half the time, for instance. And I don't know. I really don't know if this is true. Again, it's the internet. What you see on these platforms isn't, it, it's not really an accurate reflection of some people because a lot of the times, as I already mentioned, people are just shitposting, they're playing characters, they're trying to be entertaining, which is fine. It's the internet. Who really cares? It's the, it's the Wild West. That doesn't, really, that doesn't really do anything for me. But like, if you're someone who covers the league, I just don't think it's in your best interest to openly shit on somebody and again that's different from critiquing somebody like if you work for a publication i don't think any reputable source would allow you to just go out there and shit 
on Anthony Edwards like that. Just be like, oh, you know, yeah, he had a cool play, but look at this box score. No, because that's just that's that's bad content. If you really wanted to be insightful, you could be like, okay, so as I already stated, Anthony Edwards shows off how ridiculously athletic he is and how even when he's having a bad night, for instance, he still has the confidence in, in himself to go and attack the basket, right? That's being critical, but also showering him with a little bit of praise because, again, the play that this man made was fucking remarkable. It was, it, like, mind-blowing. I remember I didn't see the play live, and I, hadn't see, I didn't see it on Twitter until... A little bit after like I saw people talking about it before I saw the actual video of it and I'm like oh okay you know he probably just had you know a nice poster dunk but I didn't realize that he fucking he looked like Thanos coming out of that purple fucking mister whatever and then looking around before snapping and just evaporating a grown-ass man it was absurd to me and again not to kind of talk about like Anthony Edwards as a whole but at least there is some part of his game that he knows he can rely on. And I'm just going to parlay that into another topic about the Minnesota Timberwolves who have moved on from head coach Ryan Saunders. After coaching the team for about two and a half seasons, Ryan Saunders in total went 43-94, and a winning percentage of 31.4. This season, through 31 games, the 34-year-old was only 7-24. and 24. Um, Just really a disgusting showing by Minnesota as a whole. However, as always, we need to talk about how they got there. And if firing Ryan Saunders was the right move. Because, as I've seen across the NBA and across the NFL, I'm sure it happens in baseball and hockey. I just don't follow those sports that closely, so I can't speak on that. Bad organizations stay bad for a reason. Now, Ryan Saunders inherits the job from Tom Thibodeau a couple years ago. He was 32. He was appointed from his assistant coaching position and was the interim head coach. His father, Flip, legend within the Timberwolves organization, passed away tragically a couple of years ago. And I was reading something in The Athletic of how this was kind of like a fairy tale. It really was actually a fairy tale for Ryan Saunders, who is in his 30s, in his early 30s, has already been an assistant coach for almost a decade, and he gets to hold the same position that his father held previously. He did not inherit an easy job, but in his first season, the Timberwolves managed to finish 17-25 and 25 under his coaching. What did that roster look like? Well, that was the roster that had Jimmy Butler, Carl Towns, Andrew Wiggins, Derrick Rose, Robert Covington, but it wasn't that great of a roster. There was Cat, yes. There was Jimmy Butler, who played in only 10 games, though. It was Andrew Wiggins, Derrick Rose, Robert Covington. It was really just the only notable guy on that team was Cat. In the following years, however, the Timberwolves have continued to kind of just suck. They've just, I don't know how they managed to be this bad, but they're just not a good team. And it's weird because they have some decent players, right? 
I'm just going to run over their roster for this season. We've got Carl Anthony Towns, Malik Beasley, D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Edwards, Jarrett Culver. Um, who else? That's actually it, really. And Carl Towns has only played in 11 games because he's just dealt with so much bullshit on the outside that he hasn't been available. I mean, this dude, Cat, has gone through so much this season. and. I really hope that he is 100% right now because he just came back recently. He dealt with COVID. He's had a whole bunch of family members deal with COVID and then ultimately pass away, which is so, so tragic. And I just hope that this young man is in the right headspace to be able to, you know, contribute. And it appears that he is because he's back. He's actually been back. I didn't realize that he's been back for so long already. Maybe that points to how lackluster the Timberwolves are. But since returning to action, Carl Anthony Towns is averaging 22 points, 10 boards, about a block and a half, shooting 55% from the field. I mean, he's been amazing. But the franchise cornerstones, who are D'Angelo Russell and Carl Anthony Towns, have really not been healthy together. And that's why the team is so bad, because their two best players are just non-existent. I mean, Anthony Edwards and Malik Beasley are having to carry a majority of the load, which, no disrespect to them, but they are just not suited to carry a team like that. Anthony Edwards, as we know, rookie, is still very raw offensively. Malik Beasley is a decent young player, but not someone who can be a number one like he's averaging a little bit more than 20 points but that's not going to get it done in the team that's looking to really even be competitive in a conference that is so so just dense and rife with talent for the Timberwolves to be good Carl Towns and D'Angelo Russell have to be healthy and they have to be healthy at the same time and they have to be playing well between them they're giving, I think that's like 41 points or so. 22 and 19 is 41. That's decent. Carl Towns, of course, is the drive is really the driving force. D'Angelo Russell, whom I still love very dearly for what he did with my Brooklyn Nets, is putting up D'Angelo Russell type numbers. 19 points, five assists, shooting 40% from three. But again, they just they haven't been healthy. And I think their wellness is such a tremendous driver. Of the Timberwolves success. Now. How does Ryan Saunders. Play into all this. I'm not surprised. He got fired. Um, at least. Upon first glance. Because you see a team that's been struggling. For. A couple of years. It's usually the coach that's going to be canned first. So. Ryan Saunders really has only two full seasons, not even two full seasons of coaching under his belt. Maybe it was a little premature. I'm not shocked that it happened, but I kind of, a little bit, I am. Because you have to consider what's, what he's dealt with, the hand, that he would, the hand that he has to fucking play with. The deck of cards was not in his favor this season. Cat's hurt. Again, Cat's been hurt. D'Angelo Russell has been hurt. The team just does not have that much depth. They don't have very many quality players outside of their first, outside of their starting five. That's just a fact. Whose fault is that? 
That's the front office's fault. That's management's fault. Granted, they did go out, they did acquire Malik Beasley and D'Angelo Russell, who are, again, two very good players. But beyond that, the team is a little suspect. And when your two best players are hurt, I don't care who's coaching that team. It could be fucking Red Auerbach coaching that team. That team is not going to play well. Now, maybe I'm looking for a way to defend the front office, and I'm really struggling, actually. But, oh man, like, it's just, it's so weird. It's, it, I really don't know what, what the front office expected Saunders to do with this. And what's even stranger is that they went and they hired their new head coach. I think it's, um, he's that dude from the Toronto Raptors. Fuck, what's his name? Oh my God, I'm so bad. Let me just do a quick Google search. Chris Finch. It was Chris Finch. Okay, so Chris Finch, an assistant with the Toronto Raptors. Why the fuck are the Minnesota Tim the Minis- Minnesota? Why the fuck are the Minnesota Timberwolves hiring an assistant coach from a different organization halfway through the season? This makes quite actually zero sense to me. I'm not saying that Chris Finch <coughs> isn't a good coach. I'm sure he's a great coach. I mean, I'm looking at his basketball reference page, spent time in Houston, Denver, with New Orleans, and now with um, the Toronto Rodgers. He was actually the associate head coach of the Pelicans in 2020. Hold on. <coughs> oh, God damn, my throat. So, I read that it's because Mr. Rosas, the owner of the Minnesota Timberwolves, or no, not the, not the owner, the um, general manager, of the Minnesota Timberwolves had ties with Mr. Finch going back from wherever the fuck they were together and they passed up pretty much everyone on the Timberwolves staff. I'm just going to rattle off their names real quick so that you guys know who they are. So there's David Vanderpool, Pablo Prigioni, Brian Gates, Kevin Hansen, Kevin Burleson, and Joseph Blair. I don't know if any of these guys would make great head coaches. Um, I know there was a lot of, um, I don't want to say outrage, but there was some just kind of like concern over why the Timberwolves passed up people on the staff already. Most notably, David Vanderpool, who is widely respected among a lot of the NBA community. Damian Lillard actually went to bat for him on Twitter saying like, it it doesn't really make sense. And Mr. Mr. Vanderpool is a black head coach, but even putting that aside, yes, there need to be more people of color in prominent positions in NBA teams, whether that be as a head coach or a general manager or whatever. Putting that aside, it, ju- it still does not make any sense as to why you're passing up somebody in your organization to be the head coach. As CJ McCollum said when he quote tweeted Damian Lillard, make it make sense. And I assure you, it does not. So that in and of itself makes the Ryan Saunders firing significantly stranger. Because what happens when you bring in 
an outside coach, especially midseason. Well, Chris Finch, working with the Toronto Raptors, wholly understands their philosophy and their play style and what they're trying to do and what their goals are. He understands Kyle Lowry, Pascal Siakam, Norman Powell. So for him to be pulled from that situation, the Timberwolves are now going to have to reteach Chris Finch everything about the organization. How do the players like to be treated? Do the players prefer a stricter coach like Tom Thibodeau, or do they prefer someone who is more player-oriented like Ryan Saunders? I remember in this athletic article, one of the really one of the key things about Ryan Saunders was his open door policy, where guys like Cat and D'Angelo Russell and Tyus Jones could just go in, go in and, and talk to someone who they felt they could connect with. Ryan Saunders, being a younger guy, kind of knows like what it's like being a young man in today's society that an older coach might not necessarily, they might not understand what goes into that. That is total. That's going to be a total shock to Chris Finch. People in the organization, guys like Mr. Vanderpool, Prigioni, whomever, they see these players on a daily basis. They know what makes them tick. I'm sure they know what their fucking favorite pair of shoes are. I'm sure they know what D'Angelo Russell's favorite type of smoothie is. Like they just kind of, they know these players inside and out. And more, more fucking, what's the word I'm trying to say here? More importantly, they know what they're like on the basketball court. I don't care how much film you watch throughout the season. No one from an, from an opposing team is going to spend that much time analyzing one specific team unless they're matching up against them. The Raptors might do film study on the Timberwolves for a couple hours one day and know enough to create a game plan to defend them. Whereas these guys on the Timberwolves staff are looking at film every single day to try to figure out how to make their guys better and how to just overall improve the team because the team fucking stinks right now. And I'm not saying that they would automatically be better off with someone with a promoting someone in the organization. They likely would be though. It is more probable that they improve with someone within the organization than they do with someone from a different organization because it goes back to everything I just said. The guys within the organization, David Vanderpool, who appears to be the top assistant, someone who has had a very, um, he just had a very good career in basketball. Maybe not in the NBA, but overseas, in college. The guy knows what he's doing. You don't keep jobs in the NBA as a coach for as long as he has if you're brain dead. Like, this guy's been an assistant coach since 2013, 2014 with the Portland Trailblazers. He spent six seasons there before coming over to Minnesota, where he was the associate head coach for both of these seasons, which I just realized. That's, that's an even rougher slap in the face. They had two associate head coaches. Holy fuck. Both Vanderpool and Prigioni were associate head coaches, and the Timberwolves just fucking spat on their faces. How disrespectful. And I don't want, like, I'm not trying to talk shit about Chris Finch because he kind of just got roped into this. Um, it's not his fault 
that he accepted a job to be the head coach of the Minnesota Timberwolves. Like, I'm not going to begrudge him for that because, of course, I'm more so just confused as to why the Timberwolves are like, okay, so we have two guys who basically had head coaching responsibility over the last couple of seasons. Just fuck them. Bring in someone else. That's the vibe I'm getting from the front office. And this is why bad teams stay bad. The Timberwolves are probably not going to improve much for the rest of the season. I think it would have been more likely if they appointed Vanderpool or Prigioni. Probably Vanderpool because he has just a longer track record as a coach. That's just what I feel about this. But bad teams stay bad because they just fucking make dumb decisions. There's a reason why certain teams go year after year after year without making any significant progress. And it's because they do dumb shit like this. I know the NBA is a player's league, but the coach still matters. It might not matter as much as it used to, but every team that is contending for a title this season, this is a fact, every team that is contending for a title has an elite head coach. There is Doc Rivers, uh, Quinn Snyder. Wow, I totally fucking blanked on that. There's Doc Rivers, there's Quinn Snyder, Tyron Liu, Frank Vogel. Really, the only one who I would omit from that is Steve Nash. And it's no disrespect to him, but he, his mistakes, there's more leeway. Because he, again, he's got KD, Kyrie, and James Harden. No other team in the NBA has that luxury. And I'm pretty sure I've, I've said that, exa- that exact phrase <laughs> last week or the week before. But Steve Nash may not be an elite head coach, but he is at least a good head coach. So maybe I'll change that. Every team contending for a title has a head coach that is at least competent. And all the guys I just mentioned, Doc Rivers is a Hall of Famer. Quinn Snyder, fantastic young coach. Frank Vogel, another very talented head coach. Tyron Lue won a fucking title already. Like, the resumes speak for themselves. And let's take the Sixers, for example. Obviously, was not working out with Brett Brown. Brett Brown took them from a team that pretty much sucked shit, built them into a contender, and he kind of just got to the end of his reign. Like, the team was already good, but they stopped making grand improvements. Yes, there's some context with that situation. The roster, specifically, I'm pretty sure it was last year, was not built that great with the whole Al Horford signing. That was so fucking, that was like beyond strange. Just signing him so that way you don't have to meet him in the postseason is a very odd way to run your franchise, but you know, whatever. I'm not really here to fucking criticize that. Again, so Doc Rivers comes in and look at where the Sixers are now. I'm going to talk about Joel Embiid in a little bit, but this guy, spoiler alert, is probably going to win the MVP. And the Sixers are looking like a legitimate championship team. They've reached the end of their line. They made a decision that benefited them. And yes, Doc Rivers is a very talented head coach, but bringing him in the offseason, giving him some time to, you know, understand the team, understand the players, understand his colleagues, it's very underrated. I think like, again, this isn't just like, this isn't them working a normal job. Like they're not going to work at a bank or at a restaurant where you don't really need, where like team chemistry doesn't really matter that much. You have to tolerate your workers or your colleagues, but not to like, your success isn't really contingent on them 
as it is when you're a professional athlete, right? It's probably more akin to like you working in a hospital where the nurses and doctors have to have a very solid understanding of their environment to be successful because, and that's even fucking more dire. Cause if you fuck up in the hospital, like folks are going to die. No one's going to die <laughs> because they lost an NBA game, right? Contrary to what some people may say on the internet. But the point still remains. In sports, team chemistry is as important as talent, right? If you have, you can have the most talented team, but if those cats can't play together, you're not going to win anything. It, that's a fact. We know this. So building team chemistry is more important than anything else. And a move like this that the Timberwolves did, I think just kind of highlights the incompetence of the franchise and how quickly you can go from doing a couple good things to just being bad. Because I don't think any other team, I don't want to say any other, any other team, no good team would have made this decision to forego somebody on your staff for an assistant coach who isn't even in the same fucking division as you, not even the same conference. Like, remember when the Nets fired Kenny Atkinson? They didn't go out and hire Becky Hammond halfway through the season. They didn't go out and hire Ime Yudoka. What did they do? They promoted Jacques Vaughn. Why? Because Jacques Vaughn was an invaluable member of that staff who contributed to winning basketball. And yes, he did not get the head coaching job this time around, which stinks. I was really rooting for Josh Vaughn to make it happen, or Jacques Vaughn, but that requires a whole different bunch of context. And when Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving say they want somebody over somebody else, you got to make that happen. That's neither here nor there. The point remains is that the Nets promoted someone who was deserving of it, who put in the work and proved that he was most likely capable of being a head coach in the NBA. And what happened? The bubble nets go down to Orlando, and all things considered, with a depleted roster, they played pretty well. I don't think anybody is denying that. It's just the overall incompetence of uh, of some organizations. It, it's just it's it's baffling. It really is baffling, and it shouldn't be. And I don't want to talk about this negative bullshit anymore. I instead want to shift gears and talk about the Brooklyn Nets, who, ladies and gentlemen, are quite possibly the best team in the NBA. Do I believe do I believe that they are the best team in the NBA? No. But they're there. They are undeniably championship contenders because this most recent win streak that they're on. They've won 6 in a row. They went to the West Coast and they played their asses off. They beat the Warriors. They beat the Kings. They beat the Suns. They beat the Lakers. And they beat the Clippers most recently. They're going to wrap up their West Coast road trip tonight. To Well, I can't say tonight. They're going to actually wrap it up. They would have wrapped it up yesterday because, again, it's a Wednesday. You're listening to this on a Wednesday. But recording on a Tuesday, they closed that road trip out tonight against the Sacramento Kings. And if I had to guess, the Kings, who are 12-18, and 18, currently on a seven-game losing streak. Yeah. One, three, three, three and three plus three plus three plus one is seven. If I had to guess, then it's probably lose this game by 17. And I say that quite confidently because for whatever reason, whenever the Nets play teams that are worse than them, they fucking lose. 
They lost to the Pistons and the Wizards last month. Magically. Somehow. And I think it's because the Wizards and the Pistons are fucking worse than them. That's just my take. But how does this happen? How do the Nets go to the West Coast, beat contenders in the Lakers and the Clippers, and then beat decent teams like the Suns and the Warriors? Well, first of all, their offense was fucking lights out. 134 against the Warriors. 136 against the Kings. 128 against the Suns. But they cooled off a little bit against the Lakers and the Clippers. And it's worth noting that Kevin Durant was not present for, I want I think, five, four of these games. He didn't play, or he played against Golden State, and that was the last game he played in because he's dealing with a hamstring injury right now. Very unfortunate, but on the shoulders of James Harden and Kyrie Irving and Bruce Brown and Joe Harris and Jeff Green, the Nets have been chugging along, and they've just been lights out offensively of course defense without Kevin Durant is a tremendous issue and it's probably going to be an issue for the rest of the season despite what happened against the Lakers on what was that Saturday night oh no Thursday night pardon me and also against what happened against the Clippers on Sunday where the Nets let up 98 and 108 points respectively I think well at least against the Lakers that horrendous offensive showing by the Lakers was more so the result of Anthony Davis not being present than I think it was the Nets playing suffocating defense. The Nets played very solid defense overall. I will give them credit, but not having to go off against Anthony Davis, who's good for anywhere from 20 to 27 points a night, definitely, definitely played a part in that. On the flip side, We've seen the Nets defense look noticeably worse when Durant is not healthy. And you know what? It's crazy what a little bit of effort does for you. Now against the Clippers. The box score is kind of misleading. Los Angeles shot, I think they shot like 50% overall. Something like that. Uh, Where's their... So they shot 46% overall. And 43% from three. Which... In an NBA game, in an NBA game, that's pretty decent. No one's gonna begrudge them, or no one's gonna say they had a bad offensive night because they shot forty-five percent overall. But all the Clippers, not named Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, shot. I think it was thirty-eight percent from the floor. It was like 37, 38, 39, something like that. So the Nets employed the strategy of, hey, Kawhi and Paul George are MVP caliber players. Let's let them go off. And they fucking went off 30. Paul George dropped 34 and would have probably hit 40 if he wasn't put on a minutes restriction in the fourth quarter. Kawhi dropped 29. You know, Kawhi just doing Kawhi things. But the rest of the Clippers, Nick Batum, 1 of 6. Pat Bev, 2 of 6. Marcus Morris, 2 of 7. Lou Williams, 2 of 11. This game is drastically different if Lou Williams does not shit the bet. Nets probably lose this game actually. And this game in particular was quite controversial, I guess, because the ending of the game. Clippers are down. I think they're down two. Kawhi Leonard drives to the hole. Defended by James Harden. There is a little bit of contact. James Harden may have exaggerated a little bit 
Ultimately, Kawhi Leonard is called for an offensive foul, and the game is over. Everyone on the internet, everyone on Twitter is like, Oh my god, James Harden flopped, the flopper shakes again. First of all, fucking cry about it. I just, maybe James Harden did flop. He definitely sold it. I will give him that. He sold the call. But, again, to act like Kawhi Leonard did not give a, he did not extend that robo arm of his is disingenuous. There was a push off there. Kawhi Leonard clearly pushed off. It is as blatant as James Harden's flop was. Maybe you play, maybe it's just a play on. Who knows? However, if you rewind back to earlier in that game, DeAndre Jordan is guarding Kawhi Leonard as he's driving the baseline. Jordan breathes on him and he's called for a foul. So, you know, maybe it was a wake up call. I don't care. The point, the fact of the matter is that the Nets beat the Clippers that night. And as controversial as it was or as it wasn't, the Nets undeniably played better than the Clippers that evening. And I think they deserved to win. They were straight up the better team. And they were the better team despite missing 27 threes, boys and girls. They shot below 30 from three. 68 from, 68% from the foul line. And they still managed to win the game. If I'm the Clippers, they don't, the Clippers don't deserve to win that game. The, all the reserves played like garbage. Everybody. Statistically proven. They did not play well. They did not play up to the caliber. Then, of course, there was that play with Patrick Beverly when he got whistled for an offensive foul, sends Jeff Green out of the game. At that point, Jeff Green has only five points, so he wasn't that big of a difference maker. But still, Jeff Green, when it comes to late in the game, this dude, he makes plays, man. I don't know where it comes from, but this dude gets it done when it needs to get done. I, my takeaway is that the Clippers just didn't deserve to win. And the basketball gods shined a little bit of light onto the Nets and allowed them to come away from that game unscathed. But even if Brooklyn does lose that game, it stinks. Maybe I'm saying the same thing that the Clippers didn't deserve to win because guess what? Sometimes that happens. Sometimes teams win when they don't deserve to. They could shoot 37% from the, from the field, have 25 turnovers, have the other team shoot 38 free throws, and then they manage to win the game somehow. Like, that's just how fickle sports can be. It happens. I just felt that the Nets played better. Not by much, but by enough. Now, after this incredible road trip, Brooklyn sits at 20-12. and 12. They're one game back of the Sixers in the loss column. The East is very competitive right now. Like I spoke about it last week, you got Philly, Milwaukee, Brooklyn, and those three are the top dogs. But Indiana is playing decent. Toronto playing decent. The Knicks, the Bulls are now 14 and 16. The Charlotte Hornets are 14 and 16. Miami is looking better now that Jimmy Butler's back. You got the Celtics at 15 and 15, who are kind of they're I spoke about it last week, but the Celtics are just not playing good basketball right now. And it stinks because they have, you know, a couple talented guys in Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. And as a team, they're not playing 
up to the level that we know they can play at. And if you want to listen to more about that, just go ahead and check out last week's episode. But Joel Embiid is having a whale of a season. 30 points, 11 boards, shooting about 54% from the field. That shooting percentage is going to be a career high. And it will actually be the first, if he continues at this clip, it will be the first time in his career that he's shot better than 50% from the field. He's also shooting about 40% from three, which is incredible. Incredible. What's even better is that he's cutting down on his threes. His three-point rate, if I can find that real fast, is below 20% for the first time in his career. What does that mean? Well, it means that his shot IQ is arguably the best that it's ever been. Embiid is prioritizing post-ups. He's prioritizing high-quality shots around the basket. And this is showing because I think he leads the league in free throw attempts. He's averaging like 12 a game, which is absurd. Um, he's actually second in the league. I don't know who's ahead of him. Probably either James Harden or Giannis. But Embiid has made some incredible adjustments to his game. And I feel very confident in saying that if this continues, Joel Embiid will be the MVP of the NBA for the 2020-2021 season. As far as his competition goes, LeBron's going to be in there. I think LeBron is actually the favorite right now, uh, according to Vegas. I think he's like plus 125 and beat is like plus 350 or something in the voting. I think Joel should be the favorite just because the Clippers are, I mean, not the Clippers, the Lakers are a little bit better than the Sixers record-wise. But this season that Joel Embiid is having is the prime factor in the Sixers being as dominant as they are. Who else is getting some talk? Nikola Jokic. I think that this might be the first time since like 2003 that not only a big wins the MVP, but there are multiple bigs that are finalists for the award. This is really, it's really special. I'm talking, and also let me just some clear up what I mean by big. I'm talking like more traditional fives, not somebody like Giannis, who is a wing that just got stretched. Like his body just got scaled up. Like when you watch Giannis play, this guy does like he plays. People say that he plays like a modern Shaq. And yes, that's very true, but he's a wing. Giannis is definitely a wing player. He just doesn't shoot that well. That's the only difference. But a lot of his game is predicated on starting at the perimeter and figuring it out from there. Whereas Joel Embiid, for example, a lot of his plays come in the paint. A lot of his scoring comes inside the paint. Um, Where's it at? Field goal attempts by distance. He's shooting a lot of his shots inside of 10 feet. I think combined it's like 40... Like, damn near 45% of his shots are coming inside of 10 feet. That is spectacular. Shout out to Joel Embiid. Nikola Jokic is more so a hybrid, but he still gives me, like, old-school center vibes. He's kind of like the, the typical European center. And the only thing that is really stopping him... I'm just going to pull up, actually, a comparison of these two guys real quick. <laughs> The only thing I feel that's stopping 
Nikola Jokic is the fact that what the fuck? Where'd it go? Oh, okay, that's annoying. I gotta reselect all this. Awesome. Awesome. I just think that the Nuggets record is really gonna be what halts the um the Jokic MVP talks because yes, they've gotten better. They're 16 and 14 though. They're underperforming and they just look bad sometimes. They straight up look bad. I mean, I don't care how great Jokic is playing. I mean, I do kind of care actually because he's playing phenomenally. He's putting up 26, 27 points, 11 boards, also having a career year, shooting 56 overall, 40 from three, and adding in eight and a half assists. His fingerprints are on every piece of the Nuggets offense. Now, that is definitely a product of the system that Mike Malone has created where they want Jokic to be pretty much the primary facilitator for everything. Like they don't really have you know, they don't have an elite point guard. They have Jamal Murray. I don't consider him a point guard. I think at this time Monte Morris, who is very good, just again, not elite. Jokic is responsible for creating so much of the offense. So yes, his stats are inflated. And yes, they need to be inflated for Denver to contend. But when you look at the Sixers roster, offense, at least the shot creation for others, goes through Ben Simmons. This guy primarily brings the ball up the court, gets the offense ready, and then ultimately the ball finds its way into Joel Embiid's hands. Mainly because he's the most dominant player in the league right now. And you would be silly not to have him touch the ball as often as possible. But Ben Simmons still initiates a lot of the offense. And I think that if it would, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that if Joel Embiid were asked to do the same thing that Jokic was, it, he would, he'd crash. He doesn't have the skill set to be able to do that. His skill set is to get the ball on the block, bully his man, drop 30, and be an anchor on the defensive end, where Jokic is a far better passer and Bede is the more terrifying defender. He is great shot blocker. His hands are extra active this year, which is at least I think they are. He's average, yep. Yeah, he's averaging more than one steal for the first time in his career. His blocks are a little bit down, but that kind of is expected when someone is as versatile defensively as Joel Embiid. He might not be like stopper on the perimeter but he is agile enough and swift enough to kind of dance out there for a little bit but at this rate I've totally shifted from Kevin Durant to Joel Embiid and the main reason being that KD has just missed too much time I gotta pull up their stats like a couple couple weeks ago I was all in on Kevin Durant being the MVP and I think a lot of people were because just looking at what the Nets were doing and looking at how he made them go. I mean, look at these numbers. 29 points, 7 rebounds, 5 assists, damn near 50-40-90, almost 52 from the field, 43 from 3, 86 from the line. Like, Kevin Durant's production coming on the heels of an Achilles injury, no pun intended, I guess. Also, averaging as many blocks as Joel Embiid. I didn't recognize that. For him to be doing this, and 
basically he was keeping the Nets afloat while they figured out the whole Harden, Kyrie, Durant dynamic. It really didn't matter because you know what? When Steve Nash needed a bucket, he was telling the guys, hey, get the ball to KD. Let KD rock. Let KD cook. And then the COVID situation happened where he missed a week because of contact tracing. He's dealt with various injuries that might not be that severe, but for a guy who is coming off of an Achilles injury and especially on a team that is looking to contend for a title, you're not going to take that chance. No way. It, it would be foolish of you to not be extra cautious, at least in the regular season. So Kevin Durant at this point has only played 19 of his team's 32 games. Joel Embiid hasn't played many more at 25, but he's at least been healthy for almost, it's probably like 80% of his team's games or so, 25 at 31. That's just about a quarter, I guess. A little bit, a little more. I'm not really good with math like that, but I don't foresee Kevin Durant playing like 60% of his team's games. I think, I don't know if there is like an actual cutoff, but if I had to guess, anything less than two-thirds of your team's games pretty much eliminates you from the MVP race just because you're not really there enough. I think that's kind of like my cutoff for it. And that's really the only reason I've shifted for Joel Embiid. I always thought that Embiid had a chance, even when I was like pulling for KD. I felt that Embiid was right there. Embiid, Steph was there for a little bit. I'm really upset that the Mavericks aren't better because I picked Luka Doncic as my preseason MVP and that fucking blew up in my face. But listen, you know what? Fucking smack me in the face with that L and let's, let's keep it moving. Let's keep it moving. So I think that's pretty much, I think that's pretty much going to do it. Yeah. I mean, Joel's probably going to win the MVP. The Timberwolves continue to be a poverty franchise. Um, I don't really talk about the Lakers, but I can't really remember if I even wanted to talk about them because they've got, dude, they they got to go through the fucking blender right now. And I think last week, that time, AD was only supposed to be out for like two or three weeks. Now it's a month before his reevaluation on this, uh, I think it's a calf injury. The Lakers have a tough road ahead. And, and, and I know LeBron is an all-time great. And I know they got a great team. It's just, it's going to be very difficult for them going forward because they got to adjust to life without AD. I think they'll be fine again because LeBron, but things could get ugly. If the Lakers, what's what's probably going to happen is that if the Lakers get into a skid, people are just going to like forget about them. And that might be the best possible outcome because they're going to come back AD healthy, LeBron healthy, and they might come out and depending on who they get in the first round of the playoffs, it could be over in four or five games. Like record-wise, they're not that much better than the teams below them. Like they're two games ahead of Portland or two games ahead of Phoenix, four games ahead of Portland, and then everyone else, um, Denver, Golden State, the Spurs, six games. That's kind of where the cutoff is. But yeah, the Lakers got a tough road. And with that, I'm going to end it here. As always, thank you guys for tuning in. 
again, I really do appreciate it. If this is your first time, welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Just know that any way you can support the show is much appreciated, whether it's following it on social media, following it on Spotify, on Apple, or whatever your preferred podcast player is. Also, if you do use Apple Podcasts, if you could leave a rating and a review, that would be spectacular. It supposedly helps the podcast algorithm. And anything else, if you enjoyed it, hey, tell a friend. If you got someone who needs to vibe out for an hour and just wants to listen to some internet moron talk about his take on the NBA, I'm their guy. Once again, thank you guys, and I will catch y'all in the next one.